Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There are three other hosts that are joining me today, of course. Anna. Hello, you guys. Hans. Howdy, howdy. And Danielson. Heyo. So before we start today's episode, I just want to say, like always, we do not run any ads on this show or take any money from any corporations. So if you'd like to help us out, well, there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. For only $5 a month, which is 16 cents a day, you can sign up to our Patreon and get an extra episode each week. These Patreon episodes are exclusive to members only. Today we released a Patreon episode, which is Theories Thursday. Patreon exclusive, exclusive, exclusive. Also, we have over 45 extra episodes, which is over 60 extra hours already locked and loaded for your listening pleasure such as the Nexium Cult, Secret Nazi Space Program, Isaac Cappy, and much more. We have a lot of extra Patreon episodes and a ton of extra blooper reels, which you get access to all of them for just five bucks a month. Another way to support the show is through merchandise. Just teleport on over to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on that shop button. There you can see we have t-shirts, hats, totes, mugs, you know, all that good stuff. I just wanted to say that the money that we get from that Patreon and our merchandise sales, it goes to bettering the show. Also, you know, we know things are tough out there right now. So if you can't afford a shirt or a Patreon membership but want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes, and that helps us out a ton. If you don't want to leave one, though, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. If any of you would like to reach out to us, then you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the contact button, and there you'll be able to find our email addresses. All right, so that's the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Oklahoma City bombing. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about who was Timothy McVeigh, the bombing itself, strange facts and findings surrounding the bombing, theories, and of course, wrap it up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. One of the deadliest acts of domestic terrorism in the United States history over 26 years ago, in Oklahoma City, a massive homemade bomb exploded, destroying a federal building. The blast killed 168 individuals, injured 680 others, and damaged 324 buildings within a 16-block radius. Within 90 minutes of the explosion occurring, an individual named Timothy McVeigh was pulled over on the highway, arrested, and charged with this bombing. Many odd things surround this event, such as, why did many of the witnesses say that they saw additional individuals leaving the building with Timothy McVeigh before the bombing took place? On the morning of the bombing, why was the ATF office located inside the federal building empty? 
why was an unexploded bomb found attached to the gas line of the building? Was this all done by the CIA and they used Timothy McVeigh as a scapegoat? Or was there something more sinister going on behind the scenes that is being hidden from the public? So to better understand what happened that day, we are first going to tell you the official story of what occurred. So something to keep in mind, there are some individuals that claim the official story that is presented by the FBI and the media is not actually what happened and that there are strange facts and findings that present a different timeline and the possibility of multiple people involved. Now, before we get into those strange facts and findings and discuss those different possible scenarios, I think it is best to start off with the official story, which revolves around an individual named Timothy McVeigh. So, Anna, can you start us off and tell us a little bit about him? Now, like Aaron mentioned, this official story that is accepted as the narrative of what happened that day all revolves around an individual named Timothy McVeigh. So... Tim, I'll call him, was born on April 23, 1968, in Lockport, New York. He was the only son of three children to Mildred and William McVeigh. Early in his life, his parents ended up divorcing and Timothy moved in with his father. Shortly after moving in with his father, Timothy's grandfather started taking him to the gun range. There at the gun range, his grandfather taught him everything there was to know about guns. Because of this, Timothy started developing an interest for them and would routinely go to the gun range for target practice. In school, Timothy made good grades but was often bullied. He was described by his teachers as tall, skinny, and quiet. Most of his classmates remembered him as being very shy and withdrawn, while a few described him as an outgoing and playful child who withdrew as an adolescent. Timothy only had one girlfriend growing up, and something else worth noting here is that during an interview, he did tell journalists that he did not have any idea how to impress girls. That's just a little knowledge nugget for you. So while in high school, Timothy also became interested in computers. He actually became so interested that he hacked into government computer systems on his Commodore 64 under the username The Wanderer. Because of this, in his senior yearbook, he was named Most Promising Computer Programmer of Starpoint Central High School. So in 1986, Timothy graduated high school and earned a partial college scholarship. He briefly attended a local business college before dropping out. After dropping out of college, Tim, who I'm going to call him from now on to keep it short, worked as a security guard for an armed car. Some of his co-workers stated that all he talked about was guns and was just obsessed with them. Another little like, knowledge nugget to throw in on top of all the ones we're going to put in here. So his co-workers, when he would come in, said that, like at this armed car company, would say that Timothy came in to work looking like, and I quote, looking like Pancho Villa, that he was wearing bandoliers. Which, if you don't know what bandoliers are, they are pretty much pocketed belts that are worn over the chest and are used for holding either individual bullets or belts of ammunition. And we'll have a picture linked up under the episode of what that looks like. In 1988, Timothy left his job and enlisted in the United States Army. He attended basic training and advanced individual training in the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia. While in the military, he used much of his spare time to read about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. 
He was a top-scoring gunner with a 25mm cannon on the Bradley Fighting Vehicles used by the 1st Infantry Division and was promoted to sergeant. Timothy was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas before being deployed on Operation Desert Storm. In an interview about his time spent at war, Timothy said that on his first day there, he had decapitated an Iraqi soldier with cannon fire and it was celebrated between him and his fellow soldiers. He also said that during the war, there were some moments that shocked him. For an example, there were Iraqi army prisoners that were surrendering, but he was ordered to execute them. Another example, he said, was that after the U.S. troops routed the Iraqi army, they decided to leave the Kuwait city. Upon leaving, he was shocked to see the carnage of dead bodies on the road. After coming back from the war, Timothy received multiple service awards, including the Bronze Star Medal, the National Defense Service Medal, the Southwest Asia Service Medal, the Army Service Ribbon, and the, the Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. Shortly after receiving those honors, he received an invitation to try out for the Army Special Forces. On the second day of the 21-day assessment and selection course for the Special Forces, he gave up. He then decided to leave the Army and was honorably discharged in 1991. So after leaving the Army, Timothy returned to New York, but was unable to find steady work. Around this time, he started gambling. Timothy was unable to pay some of his gambling debts and took a cash advance to cover it. That's where you mess up, man. Oh, yeah. You get deep with those sharks. You start swimming with the sharks. Yeah, it's bad you, news. You start hitting, like, max bet, and before you know it, your $100 is down to zero. <clears throat> Shortly after taking this cash advance, the government mailed him a letter and told him that he had been overpaid $1,058 while in the army and that he had to pay back the money. Of course, this caused him to default on his cash advance payments to his gambling debt. Side note, I was once paid as a four-star general, which was like 18 grand for two weeks or like two months. I remember like opening up my bank account. I was like, well, what the f***? I said, you did. But then, like, in my head, I remember the meeting, which was like, hey, they can f up your pay sometimes. So I just held on to the money. They called me up and said, yo, we overpaid you for like two months. I'm like, yeah, I know. I got the money. I about cried. I was like, oh, I've never seen this so much money. Because, you know, I only got paid like $1,100 a month, like 500 and some odd dollars a week or two, every two weeks. Dang. <laughs> you should have invested it. Yeah, right, dude. And I had to like pay like $300 a month back to them, dude. They charge a ridiculous amount plus interest. All right. Now, because uh, Timothy, you know, defaulted on his gambling debt because the army overpaid him, uh, he became pretty upset with the government about this error and decided to write an angry letter to them. In this letter, he said, and I quote, Go ahead, take everything I own, take my dignity. Feel good as you grow fat and rich at my expense, sucking my tax dollars and property. Now, after he wrote this letter, uh, he began looking for a place where he could live without heavy government regulation or high taxes. Now, that letter wasn't the only one that Timothy wrote during that time. He also wrote letters to local newspapers complaining about taxes in which he said, and I quote, taxes are a joke. Regardless of what a political candidate promises, they will increase. More taxes are always the answer to government mismanagement. They mess up. We suffer. 
taxes are reaching cataclysmic levels with no slowdown in sight. Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. He also wrote a letter to Representative John J. LaFouse of New York, in which he complained about the arrest of a woman for carrying mace. He said, and I quote, It is a lie if we tell ourselves that the police can protect us everywhere at all times. Firearms restrictions are bad enough, but now a woman can't even carry mace in her purse. Around this time, Tim moved into a small apartment that had no telephone. Now, let's fast forward just a little bit to March 1993. You know, at this time in Waco, Texas, the FBI was involved in the siege on the Branch Davidian compound. Now, if you aren't familiar with that event, we did an episode over it, which I highly suggest all of you listen to it if, you know, you haven't. If you have, that's even cooler. All right. So this siege was going on, and Timothy decided to drive to Waco, Texas to observe it. At the scene in Waco, Timothy viewed the U.S. government's actions as illegal and started distributing pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, When guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. While there, he was also interviewed by a student reporter and told that reporter, and I quote, the government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the people. You give them an inch and they take a mile. I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government. The government is continually growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against government control. For the five months following the Waco siege, Timothy worked at gun shows around the United States selling guns. At these gun shows, he would hand out free business cards that didn't have his business information on it. Instead, he had Lon Haruchi's name and address printed on it. Which, if you aren't familiar with Haruchi, back in 1992 during the Ruby Ridge standoff, Haruchi was the FBI sniper that shot and killed Randy Weaver's wife while she was standing in her doorway holding, holding their baby. We did an entire episode over Ruby Ridge. And of course, if you haven't heard that one, we definitely recommend that one as well. All right. So Timothy was handing you know, out these business cards at this gun show, and it had Lon Haruchi's name and address on him. So not only did he do that, but he also wrote hate mail to Lon, saying, and I quote, what goes around comes around. In April 1993, Timothy headed to a farm in Michigan where former roommate, Terry Nichols lived. In between watching coverage of the Waco siege on TV, Nichols and his brother began teaching Timothy how to make explosives by combining household chemicals in plastic jugs. At this time, Timothy was angered by what was occurring, you know, in Waco, especially by the government and their use of CX gas on women and children. It is said that this anger is what caused him to, to decide that it was time to take action. Timothy started to consider a campaign of individual assassinations. He compiled a list of eligible targets, including Attorney General Janet Reno, or Judge Walter S. Smither Jr. of Federal District Court, who handled the Branch Davidian trial, or even Lon Harucci, that uh, FBI sniper. But after thinking about it for a while, 
Timothy came to the conclusion that an assassination seemed too difficult. He then decided that since federal agents had become soldiers, that he should strike them at their command centers, that he could make the loudest statement by bombing a federal building. So that is what he decided to do. So, at a lakeside campground near Timothy's old army post, him and his friend Terry Nichols started construction on an explosive device. This bomb consisted of about 5,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and nitromethane. It was then mounted to the back of a rented rider truck. On the morning of April 19th, 1995, Timothy drove the rider truck with the explosive in the back of it towards the Alfred P. Murray uh, Federal Building. This federal building contained regional offices for the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, the U.S. Secret Service, the DEA, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is ATF, and contained recruiting offices for the U.S. military. In all, the building contained over 550 employees. Before arriving at the building, Timothy pulled the truck over to light a two-minute fuse. He then proceeded to drive the vehicle in front of the building, park it, and walk away. At 9.02 a.m., a large explosion destroyed the north half of the building. It killed 168 people. That 168 people also included 19 children that were in daycare on the second floor and it also injured 684 others. According to the Oklahoma City Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism, more than 300 buildings in the city were damaged. More than 12,000 volunteers and rescue workers took part in the rescue, recovery, and support operations following the bombing. Of course, a nationwide manhunt began for whoever did this the FBI got involved and started digging through the rubbish. They found a rear axle of the vehicle that had exploded. On the rear axle was the vehicle identification number in which they traced the vehicle back to being a rider rental box truck that was rented at the Junction City, Kansas. Workers there at Ryder assisted the FBI and told them that the person who rented the truck was named Robert Kling. When the FBI started running that name through their database, It came up empty, and they figured it had been an alias. So the FBI brought in an FBI artist to speak with the Ryder employees to get a sketch of the renter. They then used that sketch to show individuals in the area to which a person named Lee McGowan, who was a manager of a local motel, identified the man in the sketch as Timothy McVeigh. Like we mentioned earlier, before the bomb went off, Timothy left the area and started walking. He got into his vehicle and started driving on Interstate 35 near Perry, Oklahoma. While driving, he passed State Trooper Charles J. Hanger, who just noticed that Timothy's yellow 1977 Mercury Marquise had no license plate on it. Of course, the State Trooper doing his due diligence pulled him over. While approaching Timothy's driver's side, the officer noticed a bulge. Uh, The officer noticed a bulge under Timothy's jacket and knew that he had a gun. The state trooper then arrested him for driving without license plates and possessing an illegal firearm 
because Timothy's concealed weapon permit was not legal in Oklahoma. Now, at the time of this arrest, they didn't know that he was the bomber. It was only three days later that he was identified as the subject of the nationwide manhunt. On August 10th of 1995, Timothy was indicted on 11 federal counts, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, use of a weapon of mass destruction, destruction with the use of explosives, and eight counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of law enforcement officers. On June 2, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on all 11 counts of federal indictment. Now, just a random knowledge nugget here. Although 168 people, including 19 children, were killed in the April 1995 bombing, murder charges were brought up against Timothy for only the eight federal agents who were on duty when the bomb destroyed much of the Murrah building. Yeah, which, a little odd, but... Agreed. Okay. So then on June 13th, the jury recommended that Timothy receive the death penalty. Before the sentence was formally announced by the judge, Timothy addressed the court for the first time and said, If the court please, I wish to use the words of Justice Brandes, dissenting in Olmstead, verse United States, to speak for me. He wrote, Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher, for good or for ill. It teaches the whole people by its example. That's all I have. Of course, Timothy was sentenced to receive the death penalty by lethal injection. Timothy was held at USPS Florence 80 Max Prison in Florence, Colorado, and was housed in what was known as Bomber's Row. reason it was called that is because individuals like Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, Luis Felipe, and Ramsey Youssef were also housed in this cell block. So while Timothy was awaiting his death penalty, he did a number of interviews. During an interview in 2000 with Ed Bradley for 60 Minutes, Bradley asked Timothy for his reaction to the deaths of the 19 children. He said, and I quote, I thought it was terrible that there were children in the building, that he had not known that there was a daycare center on the second floor and that he might have chose a different target if he had known about it. Two individuals named Lou Mikkel and Dan Herbick spoke with Timothy in interviews totaling 75 hours. They asked Timothy what he thought about the innocent victims. He said, and I quote, To these people in Oklahoma who have lost a loved one, I'm sorry, but it happens every day. You're not the first mother to lose a kid, or the first grandparent to lose a grandson or a granddaughter. It happens every day somewhere in the world. I'm not going to go into that courtroom, curl into a fetal ball, and cry just because the victims want me to do that. So as Timothy's execution date was coming closer, he started to appeal it, which caused his death sentence to be delayed. The appeal was taken to the Supreme Court of the U.S., of course, and was denied on March 8, 1999. The execution date was set for June 11, 2001. Timothy made a couple requests beforehand. He requested that his execution be nationally televised, but obviously that was denied. And also get this, an internet company tried to sue because they said that they had the right to broadcast the execution, which of course the lawsuit was very unsuccessful. So another request that Timothy had was that he invited conductor David Woodard 
to perform requiem mass music on the eve of his execution. While acknowledging Timothy's horrible deed, Woodard consented, intending to provide comfort. Timothy also requested a Catholic chaplain and that his last meal uh, consist of two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Just before Timothy McVeigh's execution, he chose William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus as his final statement. Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection at 7.14 a.m. on June 11, 2001. So that's the official story given to us of the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh. Now, there's a lot more to this story than what's on the surface. And we're going to start digging into those weird, strange facts and findings. So, Anna, do you want to hit us with the first strange fact and finding? Yeah. Man, there's so many of these. So, the first one's about a biochip. While visiting friends in Michigan, Timothy reportedly complained that the Army had implanted a microchip into his buttocks. I say that again, his buttocks, so that the government could keep track of him. It's <laughs> a little weird. I believe it. I believe it. That peanut butter shot they give you in the military, it's too long. It's too long. That just sounds weird. Okay, so they give you a penicillin shot, unless you're allergic to penicillin or like any of the cillins. They give it to you, and it, it is best described as getting a shot of peanut butter in your ass, in your butt cheek. You don't like the needle, it's okay. But when they start pumping that into you, the pen, they pump so much penicillin in you that it feels like they're pumping thick peanut butter into your butt and it feels like like a good like half dollar size dollop of peanut butter in your booty i'm gonna be honest with you when it was time to get the penicillin shot we were all standing against the wall you know with our pants pulled down a little bit we were laughing because you hear somebody go when they'd get it and then like you knew it was your turn when the dude next to you went and you're like oh shit and when i got it, i was like that ain't bad but when they put it in, i was like ooh, like pulling up like trying to pull away it's like oh, god dang this hurts Mm. A little knowledge nugget about Hans. Nice. He likes it in the booty. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it in my butt cheek. All right. Speaking of knowledge nuggets, what's this next strange fact and finding you got for us, Hans? So in a 60 Minutes interview with Timothy, the host did an additional interview with some of the family members that lost loved ones. There was a very interesting clip that I want to share with you all from what one of the family members said. Let's just take a listen to that right now. If you were in a room with Timothy McVeigh, what would you say to him? I'd say, uh, Tim, why don't you be a man for one time and stand up and tell me why you bombed that building? I'd get on my knees and beg him to give us the names of the other people involved in the bombing. The other people involved in the bombing? What? That lady was woke. She knew something. Did mm. she did she die mysteriously? Just I don't know. Asking. I don't even know who it was. Damn it. Yeah, COVID got her. Oh my god. <laughs> the long-term effects. <laughs> We're going to get her eventually. Yeah, so I think later on we talk about an additional bomber or somebody assisting Timothy McVeigh that they never uh catch or talk about. That never existed. Yeah, existed. All right, um, so we're going to move on to the next strange fact and finding, which is pretty weird. So this one's called Strange Accusation. 
It involves an individual named David Paul Hammer. Now, this David Hammer guy, he was housed in the death row wing in an adjacent cell to Timothy McVeigh. They spent 23 months as neighbors and spoke to one another on a daily basis. After Timothy was executed, David Hammer decided to write a book about his discussions with Timothy. In the book, David says that Timothy McVeigh was no mastermind, that he had some fine qualities. He was able to follow instructions to the T, but his intelligence was average at best. His communication skills were limited, and he definitely was not a leader. David then goes on to say that Timothy McVeigh told him in secrecy that he was recruited while in the army by someone called the Major, and that he was sheep-dipped to infiltrate Patriot militia groups. Hold on, pause real quick. What is... Hans, can you explain to us what sheep-dipped means? All right, sheep-dipping is basically the act of another government agency, or as some people call it, the uh, OGF, just the other government agencies, grabbing you from your current posting, you, wherever you're at in the world, and you fall under a different uh, set of leaderships, a different rule of engagements, basically a whole set of rules that don't apply to the regular military. Your, your stuff is top secret. It's supposed to be never talked about, and uh, just you, whatever you do will never see the light of day. Okay, so... David said that Timothy McVeigh was recruited by someone called the Major and sheep-dipped to infiltrate the Patriot militia groups. What else did David say, Dan? He never disclosed the mysterious Major by name. His unit was attached to the Defense Department. Timothy also said that according to his recruiter, you know, the Major, the unit was so secret that even the U.S. Secretary of Defense was unaware of its existence. The Major then went on to further explain that the agenda for this secret unit was primarily domestic intelligence gathering and internal threat evaluations with an emphasis on direct counteraction operations. Funding and support for the operations would be provided through sources unconnected to the U.S. government. Timothy McVeigh was to familiarize himself with the rhetoric of the extreme right wing ideology and create the plausible aura of a disgruntled soldier. Another strange fact to add to this is that Terry Nichols, the one who helped Timothy, stated that in December of 1992, Timothy told him that while he was serving in the U.S. Army, that he had been recruited to carry out undercover missions. Dang, so he was an undercover soldier sent to, Mm. well, according to this hammer guy, sent to go infiltrate. Side Mm. note, he, Timothy, also admitted this in a uh, a letter to his sister that the New York Times got a hold of that he was a also a drug runner and an assassin for the CIA. Wow. Yeah, he also listed operations that he was involved in and where and what happened. But it's an often overlooked uh, subject. I believe it, man. The CIA is sketchy with some of the things they've done in the past. I wouldn't put it past them. All right, you guys, these strange facts just don't stop. Get this. Timothy McVeigh was discharged from the military in May of 1992. But on August 3rd of 93, someone who looked and sounded just like him was filmed in uniform at Camp Grafton, North Dakota. 
David Hammer, the inmate that spoke with Timothy, specifically mentions this camp as a facility that Tim scouted for explosives. Also, something else that is strange to note, according to the U.S. Defense Department record, Tim held a DOD secret clearance that did not expire until May 11, 1995. The Oklahoma City bombing was April, uh, April 19, 1995. So basically, they sent him up uh, on one last big mission before he was going to be done. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Something else that David claims in his books is that Timothy revealed to him that he had hand, he was handed $50,000 to begin his mission of hobnobbing with other agents and informants at militia group militia meetings and gun shows. When he penetrated the Elohim city group, the joke was that there were more co-intel agents than real militia. So much so that it was known as the Alphabet City. Timothy went on to tell Hammer that after the morning of the bombing, and I quote, I was never trying to escape capture. My arrest was all part of the mission. The bombing had to land squarely at the feet of someone involved in the anti-government movement. I left a paper trail that even a blind man could follow. Dang. Dude, that's deep. Yeah, I mean, that is some strange facts from and findings from that David Hammer, who was right across Timothy McVeigh on death row. Just something to keep in mind as we go forward. Uh, our next strange fact and finding uh, is something that everyone is kind of familiar with, and that's uh, video footage. So just like the Epstein footage and the Pentagon footage on uh, 9-11, the CCTV video footage of McVeigh's truck in front of the Murrah building is missing. The public was told that four cameras in four locations went blank at basically the same time on the morning of April 19, 1995. The FBI claims the security cameras did not record just prior to the blast or during the blast because, and I quote, they had run out of tape or the tape was being replaced. And uh, one interesting aspect of all the tapes is that they suddenly began recording again right after the 9.02 a.m. blast. So, just a little strange fact that makes you go, hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Our next strange fact I'm finding is on a person named Robert Cody Snodgrass. Well, he was a private contractor working in the CIA Black Ops Division and was turned into a whistleblower. While working for the CIA, he was offered a vast amount of money to bomb the FBI building prior to the 1990s. He is quoted saying, For over 20 years, I was an independent contractor specializing in sensitive, covert assignments, as well as bodyguard work. In 1994, I was given the task to blow up the Alfred P. Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. This job came from an ex-U.S. military man who told me he worked covertly for the CIA. I refused on moral grounds. My strong opposition to attacking U.S. citizens on our own soil changed my status from a CIA asset into a liability. A private, independent contractor who knew too much. Now, Robert appeared on Jeff Rentz's radio show on December 4th and 5th talking about his ref refusal 
to blow up the building. Shortly after his radio broadcast on December 5th, Robert was in a near-fatal car crash. He left a voice message after his accident with more details about the affair. Not only did Robert discuss the OKC bombing, he also talked about Clinton and Bush's role in the Iran-Contra affair, and much more. Believe it or not, this isn't the first connected mystery. The first connected mystery accident with someone involved or looking into, into the bombing. Terrence Yiki was one of the first responders on the scene when the bomb went off. He also may have seen the other explosive devices that the news reported. He also rescued four people from the bombing. Terrence's ex-wife, Tanae, stated in a radio interview in 1998 that her husband's death was a setup only days before earning the police medal of valor. In 1996, the New York Times released an article a policeman who rescued four in bombing kills himself. If this wasn't far from the truth, then boy, here's the scoop. Terrence's body was found in an open field outside El Reno, Oklahoma. He was found a mile away from his abandoned vehicle. Massive amounts of blood were found inside his vehicle, and Terrence was found bound and gagged in the field with a rope burn around his neck and a bullet hole in his head. What makes this suicide look like a murder is that he had several deep cuts over his body consisting with a torture killing. The bullet hole that was in his head was at a 45 degree angle to his temple. The police searched the field thoroughly for an hour, not revealing any gun that did the deed to Terrence. Out of nowhere, an FBI investigator arrived on the scene and magically produced the missing handgun. So, I just see like an FBI agent walking up and pulling a gun out of his own holster and handing it over. Like, oh, here's the gun that killed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and the police like, oh, thanks, dude. Hey, Not a problem. So Terrence's wife said that the reason her husband was killed is because he saw firsthand evidence that didn't add up at the scene of the Oklahoma City bombing. He might have been approached by officials telling him to change his story to fit the media's narrative. She also claims he was collecting evidence to support his own version and maybe the true events of what happened that day. Now, Terrence isn't the only mysterious death in this case. Kenneth Trentadu was being held in a suicide-proof cell in connection with the bombing. He was found hanging in his cell, just like Jeffrey Epstein. Timothy stated that he believed Kenneth was mistaken for Richard Lee McGuire Jr., a co-conspirator. He was also found dead from hanging. But wait, there's more. A key witness that was being held in a prison cell was found dead from hanging also. Alden Gillis Baker was set to testify as a witness in the 2000 trial, yet he died a month before it. Just another one to throw out here is the death of videographer Norman Pearl. He had told Kenneth Trinidou's brother, Jesse, that Kenneth's surveillance tapes of his cell were erased, just like Jeffrey Epstein's. Man, they got a common thing. What's going on? It seems like to be a little cover-up going on. Somebody's tracing their tracks, right? Something's going on. Who was president during this time? Clinton. Clinton. Yeah, Clinton. Of course. Side note, uh, 
Kenneth's brother submitted a Freedom of Information Act to the CIA. They handed over, after like so many years, 36 pages, basically 12 documents. They were all blank and consisted of classified national security. Of course. Uh Oh, yeah, dude. That's not a cover-up by God. All right. So what's some other strange facts and findings we got? Our next one is Larry Potts. So his name might sound familiar to some of you guys who listen to the Ruby Ridge and Waco episodes. Larry Potts was the lead FBI agent in both shootouts leading each situation with mass casualties. Why does he come up in this case, you might ask? Well, Terry Nichols, like Robert Snigris, stated in a 19-page signed declaration that the FBI was behind its own attack. Terry said that Timothy let it slip in a fit of rage that he was receiving direct orders from the former FBI agent Larry Potts. Terry said in 92, Timothy told him that while in the army, he was sought out and recruited to do undercover operations for the government. Not only is this strange in itself, but one month later in 95, after the bombing, Larry was promoted to the Bureau's deputy director by the FBI director. But he was then demoted in July 95 due to the mass criticism and look into the Ruby Ridge siege in his order to shoot anything that moves. It was also alleged that Potts destroyed sensitive documents about Ruby Ridge and was cited in a New York Times article. Almost bad as Lon Harucci. Mm-hmm. I mean, he gave the orders, so he's just as guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot anything that moves. Wow. Okay. So these strange facts and findings just keep coming. What's this next one? This next one is over Donna Buccella. So Donna was appointed Assistant Commissioner Office of Intelligence and Investigative Liaison. She also served in the U.S. Army and retired at the rank of Colonel. Donna has an extensive background in intelligence, law enforcement, terrorist screening, and security. She served as the first director of the Terrorist Screening Center at the FBI, so she's all in cahoots with them. So, when she was there, she directed the first consolidation of all terrorist watch lists and developed the coordination of anti-terrorism efforts between law enforcement, the military, DHS, and in the private sector and the, of course, intelligence communities. That's a lot of work. Yeah. It all ties in. Donna was the director of the Executive Office of the United States Attorney of the Middle District of Florida. While at the Executive Office, she was deeply involved in the, invest- in the investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing and received the highest award from the Department of Justice for her participation. She was in charge of all 94 U.S. attorneys, including the U.S. prosecutors who handled the Oklahoma City bombing case. In 1993, she went to work for the DOJ for Janet Reno, who was an associate from the Southern District of Florida, and was responsible for the training of U.S. attorneys in how to conduct federal grand juries. In fact, Donna was sent by Janet Reno and the DOJ to to Oklahoma City the day after the Murrah building was bombed to initiate the nationwide investigation that was conducted by U.S. attorneys and the FBI. Now remember that Janet Reno was a name that Timothy McVeigh 
wanted killed in the assassination she- list. Yeah, because yep. she was involved in Waco, giving yep. them the right to storm it. So again, another connection yep. to that. So why are we bringing all this up about, you know, Donna and all that? Well, back in 2001, she resigned from her position as U.S. attorney because she was being accused of lying and falsifying information. On March 16th, 2001, the 11th Circuit cited misconduct by U.S. prosecuting attorneys under Donna. The court criticized Donna's assistant U.S. attorney, Rubenstein, for reportedly lying to a grand jury, rushing the panel and pressuring it to, quote-unquote, rubber stamp indictments and overturn a conviction won earlier by the prosecuting attorneys. In another case, the court also called into question the behavior of prosecutors under Donna for their backing in court in an investigation by detectives, the court said, uh, had been built by lying, distorting, and omitting facts. Ooh, those are facts right there for you. If that ain't a truth, that's why you don't ever trust a public defender. Nothing, because they still work for the government, and they always have quotas to meet. Yep. Sorry, got me riled up there for a second. We're gonna hold. We're holding Hans back. Mm. You better watch yourselves. You better hold me. You better hold me back, dude. Grab him by the butt cheeks, Aaron. We got this. All right, I'm going in raw. Mm. The findings and criticism against the U.S. attorneys in Donna's Florida office by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals are remarkably similar to allegations that have been made against U.S. attorneys, you know, the prosecutors, handling the Oklahoma City bombing case for Donna. And the findings against detectives in the Florida cases under Donna are also very similar to allegations that have been made against FBI investigators working for the U.S. attorneys in the Oklahoma City case. For the Oklahoma City bombing trials, serious allegations have been made that U.S. prosecutors and the FBI agents working with them were guilty of lying, distortion, and omitting facts. Nichols defense attorney Michael Tagar made strong assertions of, you know, hiding and pretty much messing with evidence, you know, with uh, reports by FBI agents conspiring with U.S. prosecutors. He even made allegations that appealed the hearings with federal judge Match in July 1999. It was alleged that many of the accounts of John Doe's with Tim were given by witnesses to the FBI, and they were never adequately made available to the court at the trials by the U.S. prosecutors or the FBI. In fact, they suppressed them. We talked about earlier that they got those drawings, and that's how that McGowan chick said that it was Timothy McVeigh. So did Tim have other men with him that day during the bombing? Were there others who tried to fight back and prove that the courts were tampering with this evidence? Yes, there was. And we're going to talk about him next. But just something I wanted to bring up, even though Donna resigned for her accusations of being involved with, you know, lying to the grand jury, you know, the sketchy stuff surrounding, you know, people she trained. Donna was appointed on August 2nd, 2010 to serve as Assistant Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Office of Intelligence and Investigative Liaison. I guess this is what happens when you lie for people in this world. You get another position that requires you to not fully be truthful. I mean, she's a player. Yeah. Not a player as in like a so, player, 
but like a team player when it comes to corruption. And they want to make sure that their stuff's yeah. covered up. And... Well, they spent 10 years, you know, they probably forgot about her after 10 years is what they thought. Or they so bring her back in. Lost her records. And some fire. Mm. Yeah, some magical fire. So this leads us to our next person we talk about. So you want to talk about this person, Aaron? I sure will. This next person is Hoppy Heidelberg, right? I guess that's right. Poppy. That's real good. Poppy. So federal grand juror Hoppy Heidelberg was involved in the trial and noticed some things that didn't add up when he was going through the evidence. He says they were not allowed to call any witnesses forward. The media made it out like he had done something wrong, and that is what caused him to be removed from the jury. But he actually did everything by the book. He wrote a letter to the judge informing him that they hadn't been able to hear from any of the witnesses that said that they had seen John Doe's with Timothy. Now, when we say John Doe's, we mean like multiple people, in case Mm -hmm. you don't know, uh, during the bombing. Hoppy Heidelberg tried to say that, that there was illegal conduct of U.S. attorneys during the federal grand jury proceedings for the OKC bombing case. And when Heidelberg did this, uh, they said he broke his oath and disobeyed the law. But if he had done so, would he have not been thrown in jail for doing such things? I mean, I don't yeah. know, just a question. Technically, yes, but never got charged, never got indicted. Basically just was like, oh, you're pushing too many buttons and asking too many questions. Bye-bye. In his letter, he writes, The families of the victim deserve to know who was involved in the bombing, and there appears to be an attempt to protect the identity of certain suspects, namely John Doe, number two. I think they, the government, knows who John Doe, number two, is, and they are protecting him said Heidelberg in an interview in Jubilee magazine. This is because John Doe number two is either a government agent or an informant, and they can't afford for that to get out. But Heidelberg's brush with the government didn't end there. After agreeing to an interview with Jaina Davis at K4, he received a call from the U.S. attorney telling him that a reporter was on her way and that he was not to talk to her or he would be arrested. So Hoppy says, they tried everything to shut me up. They have said they were going to throw me in jail. When that didn't work, they got down on their hands and knees and begged. I mean, they have tried everything to keep me from talking to the press about this. He goes on to list many other things that the courts tried to hold control of so the jury didn't see it. One is the police sketches that we were talking about earlier. They never got to see that. So basically. They took Timothy's sketch and was like, oh, yep, this is him. This is accurate. But that person also said there was two suspects and they drew two suspects. Why didn't they ever show the other person's picture if, they, if it wasn't relevant? If Timothy's was exactly on, then the other person was probably a very good sketch of who it actually was. Hmm. Interesting. Hoppy, he definitely made a lot of interesting points that was showing that the FBI was involved in some sort of corruption in the evidence but another weird one was he talked about how the columns where the explosion happened there was a column behind like further away that didn't fall or sorry that did fall and not one that was closer 
So he thought that was really suspicious because if the blast went out, it would have taken everything and not like more force would have been applied to the column that was closest to the bombing. So he he definitely goes into a lot of different things. Same as like Ted Gunderson, but we have a whole episode on him that we have to do because that man has put his little toe in it and like so many different conspiracies and probably dead because of it. (laughs) All right. So what's the next strange fact and finding you got for us, Hans? So this is over Benton K. Parton. So Benton was a brigadier general for you guys that don't know military ranks. That is a one star general in the United States Air Force. He was tasked with doing a bomb explosion assessment for the congressional hearing. In his report, he made a bomb damage analysis chart. We have a picture, and we'll post the picture. In his analysis of the site where the bomb was detonated, he declared that the damage sustained from the blast was inaccurate. He said that the fertilizer and gasoline mixture used in the van and the weight of the bomb could not have collapsed a good portion of the building. His research and professional opinion is that the destruction appeared to be caused by four carefully placed explosives on four crucial junctions on support beams within the building. Bro, when you got a bomb expert telling you that, yo, something's not adding up, there's a problem. Yeah, and just like uh, the bomb that's never mentioned or talked about is the one found on the gas line inside the building, and there was additional bombs found with notes on them that nobody and, ever talks about. And Ted Gunderson even talks about when he he received a fax from somebody that, I think it was Oklahoma a college, University. that was a seismic... The seismograph stuff, yeah, and it was it showed two different activities within 10 seconds of each other. And a lot of people try to argue that the first was the blast, the second was the building falling. But it doesn't really add up, in my mind. What, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like the attack on the Trade Center. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe this was a test. But we'll save that for theories. Oh, yeah, we will, dude. I can't forget. Boop. So, um... I guess let's go ahead and go on to the next strange fact and finding, which is over Frederick Whitehurst. Now, to add more claims that the uh, FBI kind of fabricated evidence for this bombing was that the Associated Press on April 10th, 1996, reported that prosecutors agreed to turn over letters from FBI agent Frederick Whitehurst, who tested Timothy's clothes for traces of explosives. Frederick says that investigators faked evidence in the bombing case. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, this stuff just keeps coming. Uh-uh. Yeah. And that that explosive test is like pretty accurate. No. Yep. Is that like anything like the gun residue test that they do? Like uh, how officers like test you for gun residue and shit? Is it like the same thing or is it more complex? It's so how bomb stuff kind of works from my knowledge and like kind of reading up on it. It's almost like that, but they they swab like a special kind of swab on a uh, on the objects around an explosion or like, let's say like, hey, you know, you're framed for having bombs like it's a basic 
broad spectrum swab and it comes back positive or negative on this on this uh like Ooh. film paper it'll like light up kind of like you know like those little shitty you know p tests that you can buy from walmart ah okay all right all right so what's this next strange fact and finding you got dan so this random knowledge nugget here the portland newspaper the oregonian mm-hmm. on 4 20 1995 <laughs> blaze it up yeah stated that the judge wayne alley whose office sits across from the murrah building was warned several days prior to the blast by security specialists to take special precautions but the story never resurfaced on that same day usa today had reported that harvey weathers of the oklahoma city fire department said that the fire department had received a call from the FBI prior to the bombing stating that there would be some people entering the city over the weekend. Weathers didn't explain what this meant, but it's he was talking about the FBI were entering the city after the bombing later the next week, and this would have been right before the bombing. Hmm. So the strange facts just keep adding up and up. So I read in an article that the ATF received a fax hours before the bombing that there was going to be a bombing, that the building was going to be attacked, and that that's why they didn't show up to work. Well, it makes sense. Why didn't they tell anybody else, though? Mm. Yeah. I mean, we talk about it right at the end of the Charles Key thing. Oh, we do. All right. So what's this Charles Key thing? On December 24th, 1996, the Oklahoma... Court of Appeals granted the request of Oklahoma State Representative Charles Key to investigate the federal government's investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing. This ruling would have allowed Key to continue his efforts to have an independent county grand jury chosen. However, the ruling was appealed to the Supreme Court. Pending the decision, Representative Key, along with survivors and family members of the victims of the bombing, continued to raise questions about the prior knowledge by the federal government of the bombing and lack of pursuit of the John Doe suspects, who were seen by many witnesses, like 20, and the possibility that obstruction of justice has occurred. He says he knew of two witnesses who overheard ATF employees state that they were warned not to come to work that day, even though ATF agents were the supposed target of the bombing, no ATF agents were killed. And a few, if any, showed up for work that day. Charles Key also pointed out that the bomb squad employees were seen in front of the building at 7.15 in the morning, which was two hours before the blast. Wow. Oh, man. Things just keep getting more weird and weird, you know? Boy, if this doesn't smell like a can of tuna, I don't know what does. Yeah. This next one's pretty good, I think. I know. Martin Keating, right? Yeah, Yeah. tell us about it. So, the governor of Oklahoma during this time was Frank Keating, which he had a brother by the name of Martin Keating. What is interesting about Martin is that he had actually written a manuscript called The Final Jihad. What year did he write this? In 1991. It didn't get published until 1996, two years after what happened, 
The publishing company found the manuscript and wanted to publish it, which they only had one other book published. This book is the story about terrorists based in Oklahoma City, and they decide to bomb a federal building. But guess the name of the key terrorist in the story. Can you all guess it? No. 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 Timothy McVeigh. (laughs) You little shit. (laughs) (laughs) No. It was Osama bin Laden. No. If you guessed it, like Aaron did, that character's name is Timothy McVeigh. It's not Timothy McVeigh. It's really close to that. Yeah, but it's not. (laughs) Sorry. It's Timothy McVeigh, but spelled M-C-V-E-Y instead of M-C-V-E-I-G-H. It's Tom. Yep. Also Tom. Oh, Tom. Yeah. Oh, my bad. So, close. Tom McVeigh. Yeah, close but no cigar. Tom McVeigh. Very similar, right? Mm -hmm. It gets even stranger from here. Timothy was pulled over because of a missing license plate by an Oklahoma state trooper. In the story, though, Tom McVeigh is pulled over by an Oklahoma state trooper for a broken taillight. All right. Now, I know this is kind of fishy, but Martin's brother, Frank Keating, of course, governor of Oklahoma at the time, was a former FBI agent and the assistant secretary of the treasury who supervised the Secret Service, U.S. Customs, and the ATF. Then, then you got the uncle, T.O. Barney Martin, who was a career intelligence officer who was head of the United States Navy's worldwide foreign intelligence collection operations and counterintelligence activities. Now, with all these connections that Martin had with his brother and uncle having access to many, many intimate details about things that we possibly would never get our hands on, Martin even bragged about having the copies of surveillance films from the Southwest Bell building across the street from the Murrah building. The government said that the footage didn't survive, which in this book that Martin wrote he supposedly predicted about the uh, he supposedly predicted the TWA 800 flight and the attack on 9/11 uh, to have access to forbidden knowledge nuggies and then write about them before they even happened. A little bit suspicious, you know. Why didn't we bring him up in the predictions? Dude, I found this one deep, deep in there. Like, if I had known this shit, we definitely would have added his ass in there. But then again, yeah. I wouldn't even really say much of a prediction. More of like. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, he didn't publish it. And, well, he knew he I, was given intel. It wasn't like a yeah. guess. What if he was a screenwriter and he just wrote this out and, like, the government saw it and, like, the Forbidden Book and, like, dude, you got a good idea. That's what I'm thinking here. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Fucking Martin Keating. What do you know, buddy? Tell us more. All right, so what's this next strange fact and finding? We just got a couple more until we get into theories. So our next one is, you know, our next strange fact and finding is witness claim. So a strange finding that we found was about the execution of Timothy McVeigh. There was a witness from the execution that stated that Timothy was actually still alive. They saw him still breathing afterwards. Also, no autopsy was done on his body because of an agreement that if he signed, 
that he was not abused while in police custody, that he wouldn't know there no, would be no autopsy. But if he didn't sign it or he claimed he was abused, an autopsy would be performed. Then there was also the fact that the prison officials actually admitted that his hearse that was supposed to carry his body was a decoy. So where did his body go if not in the hearse? It, the David Hammer did mention in his book that he, uh, when he talked to Timothy McVeigh, that he said that Timothy wasn't upset that he was in the prison because it, he said it was all part of the plan that the major laid out that he wasn't going to get executed. That's right. Oh. You just gave him some saline. Yep. All right. So this next person we're going over is Jana Davis, who was a news reporter from NBC. She found evidence that Nichols had ties with Osama bin Laden, and the FBI refused any information she gathered. Connections to Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, they didn't want to deal with it, and they stated it was domestic terrorist attack. Nichols was Terry Nichols, right? The guy that helped show... Timothy McVeigh to Make uh, how to build the bombs. Okay. Yeah. He also made weird trips to Thailand. Uh, before he went to Thailand, is it Thailand? Yeah. Before he went there, he had troubles with making bombs. And, and then he went there and came back and knew how to make them. Oh, so, so he was there for Bangkok. Probably. All right. So what's this last mm-hmm. strange fact and finding we got? Okay, let's talk about Michael Fortier. So, Michael had been through basic training with both Timothy and Terry, and had shared a house with Timothy before. Considering his long association with the two, the FBI had been questioning him over and over, you know, and you know how they do it. He kept denying knowing anything about the bombing, and that Timothy did not do what he said he did. After gaining a search warrant for his house, they of course found fertilizer, guns, ammunition, anti-government literature, the same things they found at Terry's home. Two days after Terry was charged as a participant in the bombing, Michael contacted the FBI and told them he wanted to cooperate. Even though he believed Timothy was innocent, he stated that the FBI harassed him over and over also saying that they could change the sketch of John Doe number two to look like him if he does not cooperate, which was odd since there was supposedly, you know, no number two. Hmm. He ended up serving 85% of his 12-year prison sentence. Michael will still tell you to this day that the FBI won't tell the truth. Freaking bitches, dude. To be grueled over and over again and then threatened. Yes, if he he was charged with knowing um, about the bombing before it happened because Timothy talked to him about it. And then Michael went to his wife and told his wife. So the FBI came and, you know, was questioning him. And then he went to the FBI and said, hey, I want to cooperate, but you got to make me a deal. And the FBI heard about his wife knowing and was like, OK, well, we're going to charge you and your wife. And he was like, no, no, no. Here's the deal. You leave my wife out of this, and I'll tell you whatever you want to know. So they were like, okay, we won't charge your wife with anything as long as you cooperate. So that's what he did. He told them everything they wanted to hear. They didn't charge his wife, and then they sentenced him to 12 years in prison. So just for knowing and not reporting it. Wow. Just because Timothy made a, a comment saying, hey, 
you know, this is what's going to happen. And he's like, oh, okay, dude, cool, whatever. Fuck that, man. That doesn't show how much power the government has, then. Yeah. All right, so that's the end of Strange Facts and Findings, and I guess that kind of rolls us into theories. And um, we got one, two, one, two, three, four, five theories today. All right, so the first theory we're going to talk about is the government's involvement. So earlier we stated that Timothy claimed he was microchipped by the U.S. military in his buttocks, okay? He claimed that with them doing that, he could be tracked by GPS so that they would know where he was at at all times. He also claimed that he was mind-controlled by them, which we mentioned Ted Gunderson uh, did take notice of this claim because he was already suspected that a high-level military bomb had been used rather than some homemade bomb. Some believe that the Oklahoma bombing was to bring forth the Patriot Act, which was the Mass Surveillance Act, right? Uh, But that wasn't granted, so they had to plan something bigger. Hence, the Oklahoma City bombing was like a prototype for the 9-11 attack. They had a company remove the remains of the blast site before any extensive investigation of the crime scene could have taken place. They were supposedly taken to a they w- that was supposedly taken to an unknown location underground and are guarded. Not sure where they got that information from, but they believed it goes along with the 9/11 attack and how the companies were able to react the same way in removing the remains of the Twin Towers. Also, we can't ignore the fact that the FBI fabricated evidence in the investigation from what Agent Whitehurst said. And as well, then you got the Ted's report on the saying that the bombing was too complex for it to be a fertilizer bomb. So you take all of these things, right, and you add it all up together. And you could say the likelihood of government involvement is fairly large, I would say, in this theory. I could lean towards the government had a role. They were playing cover up. And they used it as a prototype for the 9-11. Because it's fairly similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, so what's this next theory? The media's agenda. This theory is about how the media manipulated what was being shown and discussed after what had happened. Focusing more on filtering out anything that counters the interests of corporations and the government elites, which are systematically filtered out, which in turn portrays the world as powerful groups wish it to be perceived. This means that the people or things that are looked upon unfavorably by the United States will be deemed worthy, meaning that whatever has been chosen, like an event or perhaps a person, will be subjected to more intense and sympathetic coverage than those media deems unworthy. For examples that I'll use would be Timothy McVeigh and Ted Kaczynski. Timothy was, subject, was subjected to being political with his attacks, even though being obsessed with, you know, April 19th, the Waco siege, you know, And then not to mention going around saying he was microchipped by the U.S. military and was being tracked by the GPS. The media didn't even once write about him possibly having a mental illness with these kind of statements or actions. They went with that this was a political attack. Like the New York Times ran an article detailing McVeigh's love of weapons and that he carried a 9mm Glock handgun loaded with cop killer bullets and and shared the pathological hatred of the federal government that motivates most extreme right organizations. What's cop killer bullets? Armor piercing. Yeah, armor piercing oh. bullets. Okay, I didn't know that. Random knowledge nuggies. Yeah. Then you got 
the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, who in one article stated that Ted was controlled by an omnipotent organization. Even the defense quoted one of their very own psychiatrists, Dr. Foster, who said that every aspect of his existence is controlled by an omnipotent organization, which he is powerless. Not once was he portrayed as political, even though McVeigh claimed to have been microchipped in the ass by the government, but he was mentally ill. So pretty much, you know, this theory is more along the lines of how the media paints certain people to pretty much go with how the higher ups portrays people, makes them look bad. You know, certain people, certain organizations look better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, media control, right? How the media paints because they have large influence over what the people think. Yeah. What's that? Op- what's that uh, operation that you like? Mockingbird. There you go. Operation Mockingbird. I also heard that Call! the media. Call! Sorry. I also heard. Dude, that's how mockingbirds sound. I'm scared shitless. Mockingbirds <laughs> oh, uh, make all kinds of noises, don't they? Because mockingbird. Yeah. Bro, that's what Ted Kaczynski talked about. About why he went on, like, what made him make the final decision. He said that he was in his uh, Chicago apartment and was listening to a mockingbird imitate car horns and jackhammers. And that's what pushed him to decide to start revolting against the machine. Despite all his rage, he was still just a rat in a cage. <laughs> all in all, he was just another brick in the wall. But also, I heard that the media was reporting about Timothy McVeigh before he was even arrested. Yep. That they had his face already plastered, his name and everything, before he had been arrested or even identified. It was like 45 minutes after the explosion, they said, Timothy McVeigh was at large. You know, when they went to the, the FBI went to the uh, rental truck place, the writer employees stated to the sketch artist that there was multiple individuals there. Mm-hmm. So that's how they got the multiple sketches of individuals. Yeah, I linked the, or I showed a picture of the two sketches that, they were, that were made. So you got Kling, which is supposedly McVeigh. Then who the hell's the other guy? <laughs> Super weird. I mean, there are many witness accounts of other other people with McVeigh. So there were actually two FBI agents I wanted to talk about real quick working for the prosecutors named Zims and Odom. And they were identified as suppressing witnesses and their testimony in the Oklahoma City bombing. There was a witness by the name of Debbie Burdick. Her statement was that she saw McVeigh and Middle Eastern males in a brown Chevy truck, McVeigh's Mercury Marquise in a blue vehicle moments before the bombing. During the trial, she received a call from Odom, and she was told to not talk to the defense attorney or news media, even though she was never officially called to testify. So that adds to the theory that it might have been Middle Eastern funded, right? Mm-hmm. This other theory Mid- that we have. The Middle Eastern and then the government suppressing it. So the Middle Eastern theory that it was funded by the Middle Easterns uh, revolves around the fact that we just, what Anna just mentioned about the Middle Eastern males in a brown Chevy truck with Mivay, but also the fact that Terry Nichols had ties to the terrorist Osama bin Laden, like we mentioned, And this was discovered by the NBC News reporter, Jaina Davis. 
even though she had taken this uh, information to the FBI, it seemed like they wanted to ignore it and just go with the idea of it being a domestic terrorist attack. Um, Davis also found other witnesses for this information, which they pointed out that the person was an Iraqi national. Uh, later, this person told Jaina that he was a former member of Saddam Hussein's National Guard through his own admission that he got out of the Ryder truck with McVeigh and escaped downtown in a brown Chevy pickup, which was identified by the FBI as a possible getaway vehicle in all points bulletin the day of the bombing. Now, with all this information she gathered, the FBI still refused, which she did end up writing a book about it called The Third Terrorist. I mean, it adds up that there was somebody else, mm-hmm. either Middle Eastern uh, descent or whomever, right? And I know on the news media for the next couple of days after the bombing, they were saying there's a possible Middle Eastern ties before they even said McVeigh. And it started to create this uh, hate towards Middle Easterns, right? And I listened to a lot of different podcasts about the Oklahoma City bombing, and they mentioned this quite a bit and say that's why there was no Middle Easterns involved, and it was just the media wanting it to be the Middle Easterns in the Middle East. And it's like, why would they want that? You know, I don't know. Well, think about it. When was the first World Trade Center attack? In 93, right? Or 92? And it was a truck bomb. And And yeah, and it failed. So it makes sense. You know, what better way to just ramp up that support? And they couldn't get it done with the Mm -hmm. uh, Oklahoma City bombing, the Patriot Act, and invading the Middle East. So instead they said, let's make it a domestic attack and then Mm -hmm. let's wait for a bigger attack. I like where you're going with this. Okay. Before we get into that, though, Hans, tell us this theory about MKUltra. Okay. So, all right. Everybody knows about MKUltra. If you're a big conspiracy theorist person, you know about it. And if you don't, I'm going to do a little side note. It was an experiment that the U.S. government and the CIA held on unknowing participants to advance the research into mind control and brainwashing through massive amounts of LSD, torture, and psychological manipulations. So, that being said, with... MK Ultra being brought up, it's a pretty loaded theory in most aspects. Except, except there is proof that McVeigh had several sessions with a well-known MK Ultra psychiatrist. Lewis West was a professor at UCLA that was payrolled by the CIA to do LSD experiments on unsuspecting patients. He is well known for handling people like Jack Ruby, Sirhan Sirhan, and Patty Hearst. He was also a consultant on the Helter Skelter murder case and the psychological evaluation of Charles Manson. So, with with McVeigh's time with Dr. West, he could have been unknowingly participating in this experiment that was supposed to end decades before McVeigh met him. And just also another knowledge nugget, just to show you how messed up this Dr. West is, Dr. West 
served on the board of directors for the False Memory Foundation, an organization founded on pedophile apologists that marginalizes victims with ritual abuse and smears their advocates. And you can read on page 19 of this document how they gaslight these child victims. Oh, my God. That's horrible. It is, but that just goes to show, like, what in the world? Hmm. That's heavy. Oh, man. That is. Um... So I guess let's go into our own personal thoughts and theories with this. I'm interested to hear I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Anna, and what you think happened. Like what do you think you got any theories or do you got any final thoughts as to anything about this? I think people know by now I never doubt that our government's involved with any sort of cover-up conspiracy, I already believe that they were involved with 9-11, and these tie up so much. We have so many crossovers between Ruby Ridge and Waco, like, comes up, like, there's just way too many crossovers. It, I bet you if you made a spreadsheet of all the people involved, there would be Everyone, you would find a core group of people who work to specifically block this and suppress this information. So there were a lot of government agency documents, information in that building. My guess is that they blew it up to get rid of that. Something was in there that they didn't want to be seen and then use that for the Patriot Act thing that didn't go through. And instead, do a repeat for 9-11, which again, even for that, it's theorized that there were a lot of documents in that building that needed to uh, come up to surface that were destroyed in that as well. So just another government suppressing for their, their benefit, for ultimate control. So you think this is kind of like a pre-game warm-up uh, or like a pre-run for 9-11? Yes. Well, I just saw this. Well, if there is Middle Eastern involvement, you know, being John Doe number two, then that again ties more into the theories for 9-11. Okay. What about you, Dan? What do you think about all this? Hmm. April 19th. Do you know what that day is? Hitler's birthday. Is it? No, that's 420, baby. Oh, my bad. Uh, the ball thing, Temple of Ball or whatever. April nineteenth is the first day of the sacrifices to Moloch. Yeah, that's what it Temple was. Sacrifice to Moloch, Temple of Ball. Yeah, I think it has something to do with that. Considering that, you know, even though he Timothy McVeigh was supposedly targeting, you know, ATF and all that, the truck was parked on the wrong side of the building. For one, the ATF offices were on the other side. Oh, I didn't know that there was a daycare there. I mean, he took out kids too, as sad as that is. So, I mean, I, I'm more leaning towards that, you know, definitely the government, but, you know, part of making sacrifices to Moloch. That's the start of it all. Because, I mean, you got Waco Siege as well, you know, April 19th. You know, it's just, it just fits in. Okay, so you're thinking... That there's some high up government officials that 
make sacrifices to Moloch. And how they do these sacrifices are these are through these mass deaths or these quote unquote terrorist attacks. Yeah, because but in like reality one, it's ritual ceremonies of sacrificing innocent lives. Yeah, because if you look at the media theory, they painted him completely political. Just straight up political. Didn't try to look into anything more, nothing like that. You know, boom, media makes you think this way about it, giving you information only on this view. It makes so you don't even try to pretty much sleight of hand. They're giving you the news here, feeding you this information. While on this side, they're fucking sacrificing kids and everything. You know, it's... Wag the dog. Yeah. All right. I can dig that. What about you, Hans? I know you got something written down right here. What is that all, all about? Right. So, do you all know what a Manchurian candidate is? Jason Bourne? I've heard of it. <laughs> something like that. Not really. So, uh, I'll read you the dictionary.com's definition. What does Manchurian candidate mean? Well, it is a person, especially a politician, being used by a puppet by an enemy. The term is commonly used to indicate disloyalty or corruption, whether intentional or unintentional. So, my theory is, along with the fact that he possibly could have been an MK Ultra subject, is that from the time he was in the military, with him admitting to Hammer, his, uh, you know, neighbor from the other side of the cell, he was used by the military, by the government. He was brainwashed into hold, you know, conducting this act of terrorism. He was pushing a, an agenda by a different part of the government that, it, that allowed it to fail in, let's say, 1993 when the World Trade Center bombing happened. You know, it evidence showed that they knew a bomb was going to detonate at the World Trade Center. They knew, but they didn't stop it. They allowed it. It didn't kill as many people as the 9-11 attacks did, but it wasn't able to push forward the Patriot Act, the spying on U.S. citizens, which a government should not do, by the way. It should not spy on its own people. But he was brainwashed. Even in it, even in an interview, even in a, I guess the, uh, the conversation when Hammer brought up to him and said, hey, you were used, buddy. You're a patsy. They're going to blame it on you. They're not going to blame it on anybody else but you. And he got so irate. And why did he get irate? Why do people get irate when you tell them something? Like, you know, like you're being an ass or, you know, you're kind of being an, you know. Because the truth hurts. Today. Yeah, because the truth hurts. And he realized that when it was too late that he was used to push a political agenda. Did he know that there was a daycare there? He might have not. You know, I wouldn't have known that there was a daycare at a federal building like that. You know, I wouldn't have never known that if I hadn't done the research. But he was so brainwashed that he just didn't care that it happened until it was too late. And he knew that by the time it was said and done and his execution was set that he had lost any a chance to appeal or you know make it a, make a a plea for help yep and um shortly after he passed i think president clinton signed into law any military or former military individuals who 
commit crimes above a certain whatever, they can't be buried with military honors. Yep. Uh, I think it's like a felony. You can't be buried with military honors. Even if you're honorably discharged or a general discharge under honorable conditions, which is, you know, above a dishonorable discharge, which if, side note, if you didn't know, if you're dishonorably discharged from the military, you are automatically flagged as a felon. Dang. Yep. So when, you know, when you go to buy guns and you're a dishonorably discharged veteran, not saying that you committed a crime, but let's say you're just, you know, I'm trying to say this the nicest way. Let's just say you just weren't up to par and you just kept getting written up and written up. And finally, like you had so many court martials and article 15s that they're like, you know what? Let's just get you, a, you know, a dishonorable. It's hard to upgrade because you can upgrade from a general to an honorable, but it, it is extremely hard to upgrade from a dishonorable to even a general. And that just bars everything from you. You don't get your disability pension. You don't get honors. You get nothing. So do you know, um, you know what was the start of all this that could have, that could have prevented all of this? There's one thing. If Michael would have said something. No, no. Well, if maybe. he just wouldn't have gone to fucking Waco. No, it was the federal employee who fucked up and overpaid him. That's what was the Jenga block that started the whole thing to fall down. If that federal employee would have not overpaid him, way to go. He's if, the real enemy for $1, of the state. $1,600, yeah. Yeah, if DFAS in Indianapolis, Indiana would have just not overpaid him. I could definitely see that, though, because that's where, you know, even though he was gambling and stuff, mm-hmm. it, that money could have gone to pay that, but then they're like, oh, we overpaid you? Now he's in debt with fucking, what, probably a shark, maybe a mafia, New York mafia. Mm. Maybe it was the government that he was still in debt to, and they made him pay it. Nah, that was 1600 bucks. I what honestly it, think he was, like, uh, recruited. By this major guy and told, hey, you know, just like you were saying, Hans, do this thing and but we're going to screw you over and use you as a scapegoat. And he was too late to figure that out. So that's what I personally believe. But this whole thing is whole thing is weird. Just a lot of inconsistencies Mm -hmm. throughout the whole investigation because, uh, you know, like how they were suppressing that one lady about the brown truck. Yes. Knowledge Nuggy, real quick. The FBI also knew about Lee Harvey Oswald being a CIA agent, CIA agent, because it was confirmed by Jack Ruby to a employee at his nightclub that came forward and immediately said that he was a CIA hitman. But you'll never read about it. She Who also was Jack book, Ruby again. Uh, the nightclub. I think she was. I think he was a nightclub owner. Yeah, he was a nightclub owner. At in Dallas, that was tied with the uh, JFK shooting. No, yeah, we talked about shot. him. He's the one no. that shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the one that shot Lee Harvey Oswald. But in in a signed statement, this woman came forward and said that Jack Ruby introduced Lee Harvey Oswald as my CIA assassin friend. Mm. Oh. Just saying, random knowledge nug. 
it's a hard book to find. I found it one day. I'm going to buy it. Nice. Really? All right. So does anybody else got any theories or any thoughts or any knowledge nuggies they want to add to today's episode? Uh, oh, yeah. Supposedly during the court case for Timothy McVeigh, I read somewhere that the FBI withheld like a thousand something documents, which ended up screwing him over more. But of course, it didn't really matter. He was going down for it either way. Yeah, they were going to they were going to frame him either way. Or not for it, but yeah, they were going to take him down either way. I don't know. A lot of weird things happened, you know. (sighs) And it's easier just to accept the narrative rather than to question it, right? Yep. But think about all the strange facts and findings. Think about the inconsistencies and then form your own opinion on whether you believe the narrative or you think there's something else that occurred. Or that is missing from the story. And, and that share is what, it with us. Oh. Yeah, share it with us. We'd love to hear it. Send us an email. Anyways. All right. So has anybody else got anything they want to add? No, I'm good. All right. I'm good. Well, that's the end of the episode today. And uh, I guess we're going to jump our, I guess we're going to move to on the scene now. Now, if you are familiar with on the scene, it is where an individual, uh, a listener, goes out into the street, goes out onto the streets and interviews uh, somebody, an individual, a random individual, and asks them about the current conspiracies and happenings. And anybody can be an on-the-scene reporter. Just record yourself asking individuals about current conspiracies on the street, random individuals. Make sure the recording is less than 120 seconds long and send that recording uh, on over to us by email and we will play it. And um, just a little FYI, if you submit a recording and you're not a Patreon member, um, you're going to be set in queue. But if a Patreon member uh, sends in an on the scene, they automatically get bumped up above you, you know, so just a perk of being a Patreon supporter. So. So who do we have this week? Yep. This week we have Mr. G on the scene. Mr. So G. We're gonna play that right now. Hello, this is Mr. G, and I'm here with Jay Tender from India. And this is an on scene report. That is correct. So do you believe in aliens? Yes, I do believe in aliens because if you think about that. The technology had changed so much in past 10 years that in previous 30 years, we, we, we had pretty much nothing. So I do believe we captured aliens and, and we are using them for our, uh, uh, you know, to get ahead of the game here. Okay. Uh, do you believe in Bigfoot? Yes, I do. Uh, I think they do exist. Um, I mean, think about, you know, humans really are came from uh, uh, monkeys basically right so bigfoots are uh, human but they're still in the old age living in in jungles and stuff okay do you believe that amazon is trying to take over the world that is correct amazon is taking over the world because uh, i live in indiana that's a that's a small state you know uh, uh, we are we are you know way 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 you know back days in indiana i mean they're opening there's at least i'm gonna say 20 amazons 
nearby where I live. So they are pretty much building Amazons all over the world. Okay, do you believe that 9-11 was an inside job? I do believe 9-11 was an inside job because uh, jet fuel itself is not enough to burn the whole building down. So I believe there was something uh, stored before that, that blast happened, actually. All right, guys, and that's an unforeseen report. Have a good one. All right, thank you, Mr. G, for uh, that wonderful on-the-scene interview. A lot of interesting uh, perspectives coming from the other gentleman. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I just have a question. You should reach out to me personally. So he's from India, but he lives in Indiana. You should ask him what part of Indiana he's from so that when I go back, we can meet up and tour these Amazon factories together and watch the corruption of the United States through Amazon. Ooh. Ooh. Do some on the scene interviews, right? Yeah. You see, yeah. uh, What's his name? Jeff, Jeff Bezos? Bezos? Yeah. He tried to touch uh, my dick once. You know that? Nah, Back dude, in 1996? I... Really? Anyways. Proof. No. I got I got I signed an NDA. Oh. Anyways. All right. Um, like we said, you can submit your on-the-scene report, but if you're a Patreon supporter, you get bumped up in the queue. So I think we have, what, have two or three people in queue right now? Mm-hmm. So... Yep, keep submitting them, and we'll keep adding them to the queue to be played for the following week. All right, so we would move to shout-outs for this week, but since this was a longer episode, we're going to move to uh, we're going to move shout-outs uh, to the following week. So, just something to kind of help us out with our time limits for editing this week. Um, but I just wanted to tell everybody that we love you and that we're all proud of every single one of you. So, um, with that being said, I want to thank you all for your support. You are amazing, every single one of you. So, uh, Daniel, Hans, and Anna, you want to roll us out? It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you're not alone. Nice. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.